Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I will resume my reading of The War Diaries by Amber and Paul. War Diaries, June 14th, 2022, day 111. I sat down this morning, not intending to write anything at length, certainly not anything of particular interest. However, that changed within five minutes. Paul put down the phone, walked through the room, and announced that the Polish government is cutting off all funding for the Ukrainians. He spoke to a local government official who had previously been sympathetic and helpful, but today simply said, they can go to work. There are jobs. Curiously, Paul wasn't even calling to ask for funding. He was calling to see if they could send a van around on Saturday to take us to a nearby concert where several Ukrainians will be singing. There are not enough jobs to go around for both those in exile and the local Polish population, which is why I've been screaming infrastructure this entire four months. Second, most of those fleeing from war, and yes, let's say running like hell from war, are women and children. Some are mothers to those with special needs. How are they supposed to work? The new rhetoric is there are jobs. My response is, is there a room, transportation, clothes, medicines, school, food, and care to go with that job? It isn't enough to say here's work, not to mention the language barrier. The gap isn't as wide between English and Polish, but it does require learning a new language. Thus, the infrastructure has to change to accommodate such an influx of people. In the midst of all of this, we received a crisis call that a woman and her baby were being put out of their accommodation and needed a place to stay. Fortunately, we have two rooms vacant at the moment. We quickly prepared the room we thought would suit her, but shortly after received a call to say she decided to try Kiels, where there is a larger Ukrainian community. These calls always send me into psychological spasm, followed by an emotional paralysis, because eventually floods of tears overwhelm me. Yesterday was my son's birthday. Sunday is my nephew Jordan's birthday, who is volunteering his time here at the moment. Both are grown men who now take care of themselves. But I am remembering those days when they were small, as one is apt to do as a parent or an elder in the family. We often look back to the joy of these precious beings arriving into our lives. Their hands and feet and shoes were small then. They needed much care and protection. I'm not able to imagine what it would feel like to be traveling with either one or them or both in this present situation of instability. 
if you're going to resettle a person, especially a woman and her children, this requires a great deal of thought and how one prepares the path toward autonomy and independence. It's not sustainable to simply say there's the scrub brush, clean my toilet, because we all know these are the jobs most government officials have in mind. Either that or kneel here, pick strawberries. For those with better luck, there are the career positions, but they are few and far between. Otherwise, why would all the Poles be going to Italy and Germany in search of this kind of work? Interlude lunch. To our great surprise, Stefan brought a senator to visit. Along with him came a, came a fashion designer from London and his partner. They were all interested in how they could help. In fact, our visiting senator put Paul in touch with a doctor who can treat those with epilepsy. He made the phone call during lunch and set up the appointment on the spot for one of our guests who has regular seizures. He also made it clear that the bill to defund the Ukrainians had not yet been voted. So tomorrow we will hear from him as to what was decided. I pleaded the case of infrastructure to include not only a job, but full support and care. He promised he would champion the issue and speak on our behalf. I am not holding my breath that this bill will be amended to continue to provide a source of funds for the Ukrainians. But until I know otherwise, there is hope. The funds we would ultimately be sinking would be those in support of children with special needs. The senator was quite direct that such funds are certainly not available, not even Polish citizens, he lamented. At the close of day, Jordan Gala and I watched a compelling discussion among psychoanalysts who were gathered by the Fraud Museum in Vienna. The subject was trauma and the circumstance of war with an active Ukrainian translator. It was a somber but spirited discussion on the subject. There was a lot of talk about ethics and the notion of neutrality, but what I found most relevant for our situation here at Shehoof was something that Francois Devoin, psychoanalyst from Paris said. A survivor of the Holocaust herself, she made it clear that during war, one is caught up in a time warp. There is no future and no past. There is no planning for anything other than the moments, moment. No idle thinking about tomorrow. Paul and I have noticed over the past few months when we try to plan anything other than food for the day, that considering future topics such as the end of the war or even whether to go to Lublin or to the lake on our next field trip, it all seems to turn to ash or become an imponderable affair. What I can say with certainty is to receive over 2 million people into a country as small as Poland is tantamount to increasing the homeless population by this number. Because that's what an exile is, homeless. Not homeless in the sense that one has no family, no financial support, on top of the suffering from addictions of various kinds or other and so forth that leads a person to the finality of letting go of their home but homeless because they have been removed from everything they had by force. So while the means is different, the end is the same. We are in crisis. It is not simply an Eastern European problem. It's a global one. When you have a fascist dictator who likens himself to Peter the Great 
and admires the likes of Stalin, who has access to nu nuclear weapons, trust me, it's everybody's problem. I have come late to this book, but I have come, at least it is ordered. Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman. There is, is an expert look below from a Guardian review and a quote by the man himself. There is also an abstract by Emily Austin Traverse, Columbia 2020, fulfilling her doctor of philosophy degree. It's a good time to be rereading about the danger of totalitarianism and fascism. Vasily Grossman, Life and Fate. Man and fascism cannot coexist. If fascism conquers, man will cease to exist and there will remain only man-like creatures that have undergone an internal transformation. But if man, man who is endowed with reason and kindness should conquer, then fascism must perish and those who have submitted it to it will once again become people. By Lyndon Grant, it was a Guardian article over seven years ago. When Grossman submitted his manuscript in 1960, he was told it would not be published for 200 years. Two years later, he was dead of stomach cancer. His novel confiscated, arrested, as he said, for he had assaulted Soviet totalitarianism. One must be careful not to confuse him with libertarians. Rather, Grossman saw the individual as a novelist does. Human group beings have one main purpose, he wrote, to assert everyone's right to be different, to be special, to think, feel, and live in his or own way. The only true and lasting meaning of the struggle for life lies in the individual and his modest peculiarities and his right to these peculiarities. The tolerance of difference is his message not an insult on society or the state. War Diaries, June 18th, 2022, day 115, from Amber. In 1998, I had the great privilege of hearing Dr. Edward Sade lecture at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He spoke to us about his philosophy, his life, and his music. In particular, what comes to mind this morning is his book, Out of Place, a Memoir. Anur Antara, in his article on Satan Exile, quotes him. As predictable, his first days in the USA were tough, and he describes his arrival in the American continent as the saddest day in his life. In addition, the author himself has recorded in his writings that his own life experience was always conditioned by the circumstances of displacement and alienation with respect to his birthplace. In this regard, he states the following in his above-mentioned memoir. Along with the language, it is geography, especially in the displaced form of departures, arrivals, farewells, exile, nostalgia, homesickness, belonging, and travel itself. That is the core of my memories of those early years. Each of the places I've lived, Jerusalem, Cairo, Lebanon, the United States, has a complicated, dense web of valence violences that was very much part of growing up gaining an identity, forming of my consciousness, of myself, and of others, said 2000. 
What does it mean to be in exile? I frequently ask myself this question. After three partitions in 1772, Poland lost much of its land to Prussia, Russia, and Austria. In 1793, a bit more until in 1795, Poland was no longer a country, but a traveling group of nomads looking for a charitable situation in other countries. Intrinsic to any culture is its language. And this is how the Polish people identified themselves over the next 200 years. They never stopped speaking their language unless forbidden in public by the czar, such as with the case for the Kinwitz, Paul's grandparents in Belarus or white Russia, now known as Belarus. They practiced their religion when able. They sang their native songs and prepared the food of their ancestors. Unlike her husband, Henry Kienwitz, my mother-in-law, Rose Papil, was born into New Poland, a country with borders. It wasn't to last, but for 20 years before it once again disappeared, this time to war, then to occupation. When Rose and Henry crossed into Scotland with nothing but the clothes on their backs and the shoes on their feet, they arrived in Bankfoot, a small community about eight miles north of Perth. They knew no one except other exiles from a defunct Polish army, now known as combatants, a mix of officers and lower-ranking soldiers. The living conditions for this young couple were deeply dissatisfying. Rose told me that she couldn't keep Teresa from crying, and the landlady was prickly, to say the least. This young woman had come through a war, cared for refugees, defied the occupying communists by distributing her furnishings, silver paintings, and other family valuables throughout Krakow. I might add illegally transporting them by night, but was beside herself in Scotland with an overbearing landlady who insisted on keeping a quiet, crying baby quiet. So when Henry made an alliance, with the Earl of Scone Palace to care for the grounds and start a market garden of his own, the Stone College and Old Scone provided to them opened up like a castle for Rose. With no indoor plumbing and no heat other than that of a paraffin stove, she recounts her sense of jubilation that she now had her own home. Her privacy was once again restored. Her babies could fit and cry in freedom. Sometimes I get the distinct impression that there is a prejudice against those in exile, other known as outcasts, expatriates, displaced persons, persona non grata, or simply refugees. I realize I have referenced the subject before, but it bears repeating to the raised eyebrow of one who questions how the exile should live. I do encounter some visitors to Shehof who are surprised by the high functioning of level of activity here, and at times, since in their surprise, a measure of subtle reproach. So here's the question. Why should people classified as refugees be so fortunate as to have access to an art studio in which to paint, draw, or craft, or a sewing machine endowed with good quality fabrics on which to make clothes or other items of choice? Is this a luxury reserved only for those in a settled political situation? Why should they be treated to soft fruits such as strawberries served with cream and sugar when they are in a position of charity? 
Are not these amenities reserved only for those who work hard, pay taxes, those of whom are in a stable and established circumstance? Those who can afford such things? Is it even our ethical responsibility to allow a foreigner such a delicacy? Or is it good enough simply to supply bread, water, cheese, some meat, and a bed? Does it not provoke resentment from others, such as the local population who see this level of charity? Should not the foreigner instead accept their station in a reduced class, an uninvited guest, and submit to a lower wage, earning status of field and housework? I do not find these questions complicated because I literally believe that all the residents living here today are equal to me and I to them. Nothing separates us but history, place, and personal interests. Henry met Rose when he went to work as an estate manager for her father, where they lived in a manor house much like Shihu. In fact, it's been told that he even came here to Shihu in his young years to improve his skills by the side of Christo Braswell, a mentor to him. When Rose and Henry married, the dowry gifted them was the manor house near Krakow called Raza. I am certain that they had no doubt of their future plans to carry on the family traditions of land ownership and the responsibilities that came with it. Quoting Rose, if anyone told me that by the time I was 25, I'd be living in Scotland, I would have said they were from the moon. Henry was a perfect match for his bride. He was educated, intelligent, well-spoken, well-read, and I've been told by his children he had a quirky sense of humor and a kind heart. He was a religious man, a good man. None of these changed because of war. He did not stop being religious, nor did he lose his ability to think critically, to laugh, to read, to express compassion, nor did he compromise his integrity. Of course, there are those living here who do not live in a manor house in the Ukraine before the war did not. It's most probable that some lived paycheck to paycheck without the possibility of consistently affording strawberries and cream and sugar. There are also those who appreciated a different kind of lifestyle, artists, filmmakers, musicians, and wedding dressmakers. There are the well-traveled Ukrainians here and those who never left their borders. The philosophy behind the shihuf, and once again, I would pronounce it si chao, but I was told that shihuf model of sheltering and rebuilding depends on a few key points. The defining of the words charity, dignity, and psychology are integral to the way Paul and I conduct ourselves and the decisions we make. I don't feel like a charity, though charitable in a sense that we are broad-minded in our thinking. However, I don't feel anyone here, and I'm confident I can speak for Paul, is in any way inferior to us. Charity from the lopsided paradigm of I have and you don't breeds contempt. Sociologists have confirmed the backlash from charity, in quotes, bestowed upon those who are rich and think they are helpful, helping, but in fact, they are resented what seems to be instead someone or organizations rescue, rescuing. Rosa's daughter, Mary, has worked as a missionary in South America for 45 years. She literally serves the poor, not in an obliging way, but in an authentic Christ-like way, living there together with the poor. She herself has taken up the mantle of poor. 
Before I met her, Rose said, my daughter, Mary, has the face of poverty. Our philosophy is based on sustainability and self-sufficiency, living together. Yes, the foundation provides the monetary means to create such an environment. And for this, we are internally grateful to our donors. But the art studio is here to maintain dignity. So is the sewing center. Some have already lost their homes. Some fear they will be the next, but all share in the loss of a country, at least for the moment. All are out of place. All are victims of war. Unfortunately, we live in a world now of collective psychosis, and there are some very precious children here who should be fiercely protected. One of the ways we protect is to provide. She who is a child's garden of gruesome play, in the art studio are drawing and painting classes, and in the library upstairs are books, puzzles, games, and toys. And as I've said before, if you're lucky to be here on Tuesday and Friday, you can listen in on Paul giving Alicia a recorder lesson, magic. The healthy psychology of community is based on the health of the individual. If the residents here are at moderate peace, and if she who can lessen their anxieties, then we stand a good chance at maintaining a community in balance. My husband's family never truly integrated into the British culture. This is not to say that they didn't have a good life there, only to say that it's unnatural to be aborted from one's culture or origin by force. It's usually without preparation that one finds themselves in such a position. Once I got to know the Kenwoods and their background, their history, I was speechless that these people of such dignity and character were misunderstood and treated like servants, worse yet, like bad children or idiots. Of course, this attitude didn't carry on throughout their lives in the UK, but to say there was an ultimate integration would be inaccurate. I think unless you married into the family, it would be difficult to understand the scope to which they suffered loss and the scope to which they had to rebuild through learning a new language, a new cuisine, habits, mannerisms, humor, music, dance, art, all of these things which are part of a culture that now you as the orphan child must adopt. No war is, in any, is any different from any other war in this sense. All war produces this displacement of its citizens. All wars leave them homeless and vulnerable. I propose to use the word support rather than charity to partner even better. Never lose sight of the dignity in another, regardless of how you feel about them. This is not easy because they may not be demonstrating the same toward you themselves or others. But because we live in a structured environment, I believe we can practice this level of respect toward each other with a bit less difficulty. We do not live lavishly, we live creatively. We must live creatively if we are to maintain psychological health. Finally, I want to share a photo and she shares a photo of Rose and her first cousins, Jan and Mary. She says, it's a broad smile on her face that reveals a total integration to me on every level. She is at home sitting between her cousins. Thank you so much for listening. 
thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.